Time in Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Bowerbirds and Multitasking. In addition, we join by Mr. Doug Richards, who will discuss the Prometheus Project. So, stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the real famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess it makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Actually, quite drowsy. Well, you are the uh, active man, I understand. Uh, you were climbing Mount Fuji just uh, a few weeks ago. The air was rather thin, but just stayed up the whole night walking. <laughs> it took 12 hours, which is actually more than twice the usual time, but it was just very crowded that day, I guess. Well, so this is not the first time you've climbed Mount Fuji, right? No, and there's a saying that if you don't go in your lifetime, you're a fool. But if you go twice, then you're twice the fool. <laughs> But maybe a third time might be pushing your luck. Or maybe it'll take away the uh, foolish charm. <laughs> then it'll just be charming. Uh, anyways, I guess science still goes on. Does it really? I thought science just stopped and took a break for vacation. I thought that the vacation ended in 2008 when Obama got elected. <laughs> now science has to get back to work, right? Yeah. It's, so here's an interesting finding these days, and I guess now that we live in the age of multimedia and just too much information. I thought this was the age of reason. Or is it misreason? <laughs> is that a word? <laughs> Am I being misreasonous? That sounds Anyways, like a uh, beauty contest, misreasonable. I might need that category. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, there's some interesting finding that's coming out from Stanford, and some researchers in the Department of Communication have found that people who multitask really aren't doing a very good job. Oh, I see. The way they were trying to look at things was, for example, if people were using phones and email and video and music all at the same time, it turns out that they have a hard time filtering out irrelevant information. The conclusion here is that when you're focused on too many things, then you're actually not focusing on much. In fact, you just have a lot of information that you just can't filter out very well. Essentially, when you're focused on something, you're pulling out the relevant pieces of information, whereas if you're scattered as with many tasks, essentially you're just yeah. taking everything in. Yeah. So the take-home message is just focus on one task. There must be some age-old proverb about that, but... We can make one up. He who focuses on many tasks is like the wind, scattered to the many corners of the earth, but with no general direction. How about that? You are wise, Charles. <laughs> I haven't climbed Mount Fuji. Okay. <laughs> actually comes from our very favorite journal. Uh, you know, it's been a while since we've had an article from our favorite journal, which of course is... The Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences. PNAS. Alright, Frank, and now it's time for our, our Animal Fact of the Week. Oh, cool. So, what are we barbecuing this week? Have they ever grilled Bowerbird? Mm, that sounds kind of gamey. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure there'd be a lot of meat on this uh, particular bird, but perhaps you wouldn't want to cook this bird because it apparently is a very intelligent creature. So if you eat it, you'll become more intelligent yourself. <laughs> is that how it works? I'm working on my eyes these days. <laughs> 
So it's it's like Siler on Heroes. He basically absorbs the power of the other animals that he eats. That makes sense, right? I mean, presumably the protein that supports what you're eating should also support the organ that you're trying to improve upon. I mean, that's why I feel sleepy all the time. So this is a actually very fascinating work done by researchers at the University of Maryland in College Park. They were wondering if the smarter male birds were able to attract female birds better than their less brainy brethren. Turns out that there's apparently a link between the smartness of the bird and how many females it's able to attract. Well, so what they did is a very interesting test. Uh, these bower birds, uh, during the mating season, they create a very colorful display on the forest floor, which involves gathering a lot of unique items from the forest, particularly blue objects, which are very okay. rare. Uh-huh. And so what the researchers did is they placed a red object on these bower birds' display and had an elaborate contraption that required the birds to undo the contraption in order to remove the red object. Some of the birds were very good at this. Some of the birds just couldn't solve this problem at all. And the ones that could solve the problem were able to attract more mates, thus able to copulate with more females than the ones who were not able to solve the problem. (laughs) Since we have degrees, we should be able to be more successful. Yeah, well, it's unclear if the same holds true for humans. (laughs) Is that your general mating strategy? Does this explain my intelligence? Usually I turn to culture and arts and those... that's, That's a sign of intelligence. Climbing Mount Fuji, on the other hand. That's just cool. You are a cool guy, Frank. (laughs) One last story about the Fuji thing. So, foreigners who come up each year and they bring their mountain bikes up there. I didn't know how they were going to ride down until I was climbing down the sandy path. And it's basically this hill. It's all sand for about two or three kilometers. And apparently if you're a very good mountain biker, it might be... You're sort of skiing on a bike, essentially. That would seem both scary and excitingly cool. Maybe for the third one. And then, what, for the fourth trip, you'll just roll down? Ski down or something. (laughs) Well, uh, give us a heads up so we'll know when to schedule your funeral. (laughs) (laughs) If you're ever out in Japan, visit Mount Fuji. And if you're curious about the Bowerbirds and their intelligent ability to attract the females, you can take a look in the most recent edition of Animal Behavior. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Mr. Douglas Richards will join us to discuss the Prometheus Project. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. 
Well, communicating science to a general audience can be a potent challenge, especially when the audience is a group of young adults. But perhaps using fiction to ignite their interest is a key method. Well, join us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Douglas Richards. Mr. Richards is an acclaimed author whose many works include contributions to National Geographic Kids magazine. He has penned a new series of books entitled The Prometheus Project, which has received wide acclaim and which focus on uh, the young teen market. Mr. Richards, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me on, Charles. Well, certainly our pleasure, and it seems like you originally trained as uh, something of a biologist. How did you uh, get into writing? Yeah, I mean, I've always loved writing. I always loved reading, but I went into other fields. I ended up getting a master's in molecular biology at the uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then I decided I really wasn't a very good bench scientist, so I decided, well, maybe I'll combine that into business and go into biotech. So I went to the University of Chicago, which I believe you're at now. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> right. So I got, I got an MBA uh, graduating from the University of Chicago, so I had two masters, and I went into biotech, and I became an executive and did all of that. But the whole time, my dream really was to write someday. And so, you know, I finally went ahead and, and just went for it. And uh, I had kids of my own named Ryan and Reagan, and actually the stars of my book are named Ryan and Reagan. But uh, as I mentioned, I loved science fiction as a kid, and I think that's what really inspired me to get into science. I mean, I was always fascinated because the best science fiction has accurate science. Everybody knows that Star Trek has inspired all kinds of NASA scientists, and the cell phone was inspired by the Star Trek communicator and, and all of that. But in today's world, there just isn't that much science fiction for kind of middle graders, and that would be kind of a 9- to 12-year-olds. There's a lot of fantasy choices, but there isn't much science fiction. So I thought, well, maybe I can do something about that and do science fiction that has – it is driven by accurate science, by the scientific method, by the scientific thought process. And I could kind of bring out and inspire kids the way I was inspired when I was, you know, a 9-year-old. Hmm. Do you find it challenging writing uh, science for a young audience? Not really. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, yes, obviously you've got to be a little bit superficial, but I really, really enjoy it. I, so I wrote the first one, The Prometheus Project, Trapped. Uh, I guess I tried to come up with the most uh, difficult title I could possibly uh, come, come up with. But, you know, as everyone knows, Prometheus was the titan of Greek mythology that gave fire to mankind. And the books are about this group of people who discover an underground alien city that's abandoned and has all kinds of technology and science in it. They're trying to uh, kind of decipher this advanced science, and the kids stumble upon it. They go on an adventure, they save their mother's life, they figure out what the city is all about, and at the end they're rewarded by being able to be part of the team. But this gives me kind of a fertile backdrop that I can explore all kinds of scientific concepts. So it's kind of fun, and, and I think that it's just keep things very straightforward, keep, kids can relate to. So, for example, I talk about developmental biology. Uh, in the book in one section about how you know you go from being a couple cells a fertilized cell to an entire human being with trillions of cells in your body how does that happen and so I try to kind of make it, you know, what happens is your cells make other cells by exponential growth. And I talk about the doubling of a penny for a month and you have a million dollars. So you can get lots of cells and then eventually they start to specialize. Some become eye cells, some become brain cells, and some become heart cells. And they have, they're pre-programmed to specialize in that way. And, you know, the pizza and the popcorn that, that you eat actually goes into, it gets converted into all the bits that your cells need to make other cells. And so, you know, in that way, by talking about the pizza and the popcorn, and, you know, I try to really make it relatable to children, 
And so I did that on the first book, and my goal was really to write something very exciting. They all have cliffhanger chapter endings, you know, short chapters. I wanted something that they, the kids wouldn't be able to put down, and I wanted science to drive the plot, but I didn't want it to be about science. I wanted them to learn, but be having so much fun they didn't realize it. And I wrote the first one, then an editor for National Geographic Kids read it, who was in charge of science, and asked me if I could write a piece for the magazine, because she thought I had done a really good job of, of describing the science. And so I've done that, now I've done 13 different pieces for them. Uh, in fact, I have one coming out next month on uh, vacationing in space. Hmm. So it's, it's been really a lot of fun, and, and you know, the more of these that I do, the, the better I get, I think, at least I get more practice at conveying science to kids. What do you think are some of the tricks to distilling these concepts for a younger audience? I think you just have to draw analogies where you can and, again, make that as relatable to them as that they possibly can. Don't say escape velocity is 25,000 miles an hour. I mean, to really give them a picture of what that means, and I'm trying to remember, but I think it's like seven miles a second. I mean, that's, that's kind of a more meaningful description of speed to a kid. Seven, you know, in, in one second, you're going seven miles. Mm-hmm. I think is more awe-inspiring than even 25,000 miles an hour. So, so, you know, it's that kind of thing. You just try to, and you try to keep it simple, and that's about it. They really, you know, keep the writing really sparse and simple. And so far, it's, it's been really effective. I, you know, again, my, my primary goal is to, to write books. I wrote the second one, The Prometheus Project Captured, and that's, uh, I've had some good feedback on that. But the goal was to write book the, books the kids love, and I'm very gratified that that seems to be happening from the feedback that I received. And I had hoped that I would inspire kids to be interested in science, but really, the reaction that I've gotten, the support that I've gotten from educators across the country has been just beyond anything I could ever imagine. The, the, the books are now listed on the California Department of Education, recommended literature for math and science. Missouri State University has a list of recommended uh, reading for math and science. Science teachers associations across the country, like the California Science Teachers Association, the, et cetera, et cetera, they, they've been praising the book. The American Association for the Advancement of Science uh, has reviewed both books and have been very kind to, to the book. So I'm just really delighted at the reaction that the books are, are receiving. Mm. There's a professor, uh, Carl Jarossi at Stanford, who sort of tried to coin the term science in fiction. Would you sort of cl- say that this is more what your books are rather than science fiction? I mean, they're, they're definitely science fiction. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're adventures and they're thrillers. But, you know, I purposely did it with an alien city with technology thousands of years ahead of ours so that I would have a springboard to talk about different scientific concepts and, you know, in the first book, I talk about the scientific method. You know, they have an issue, and he's remembering back, oh, yeah, my dad taught me the scientific method. This is how you're supposed to go about thinking about mysteries or, or problems that you have to solve. And, in fact, it's really kind of interesting because I have them kind of remember a demonstration. If you drop two things at the same time, do they fall at the same rate? And it really is counterintuitive. I mean, as a scientist, you know, you've known forever that, yes, they, you know, absent wind resistant, two things fall at the same rate. But it's incredibly counterintuitive because I go to schools and I say, how many people think that things fall? You know, I, I take a book and I take a paperclip. You know, how many people think the book's going to land first? How many people think the paperclip? Everybody thinks the book's going to land first. And then when I do the demonstration and they land at the same time, they're just, inc- you know, they're just incredulous. <laughs> they're amazed. So I, I decided, I actually did that for my kids when I was writing the book, and I was just, 
I was so tickled by their reaction, their surprise, that I put it in the book, and I went through the whole thing. And actually, you know, the father kind of pulls a fast one because he starts out with a feather versus a rock. Mm. And, of course, the rock then falls faster because of wind resistance. So, you know, then he's got to go into, he's got to get the kid to figure out what's going on, that, you know, the reason that things don't fall at equal rate is sometimes they're held up by the air, but on the moon where there's no atmosphere, every you know even a feather and a book would fall at the same rate. So it's that sort of thing, and it's just been a lot of fun for me. Hmm. I'm really loving it. As you mentioned, you sort of took a uh, roundabout way into getting into writing. Do you have any advice for uh, aspiring writers? I think you just you know write what you love. I mean, I think that's pretty pretty common advice, standard advice. It's a tough tough business. I think you've got to really be prepared to uh, be persistent and never give up, and uh, people are liking your stuff, I mean, just keep at it. But it, it is very tough, especially now. You know, a lot of the bookstores are having trouble staying alive. The publishers are laying people off. So I'm not trying to, to be doom and gloom, but it's definitely, you know, I think tougher than it's ever been. You know, if you love doing it, then it's its own reward. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a guy at the University of Chicago, you, you may be familiar with, a guy who studies happiness, and I'm never going to get his name right. But this guy, he's one of the pioneers of the science of happiness. And, you know, what he's talking about, the concept of being in flow, when you're doing something where you're not self-conscious at all, you're so absorbed in what you're doing, it's challenging, but it's not too challenging, and all of that stuff. And, he, and you know, everybody's been there when they're doing something where time seems to go by in a second. You, you start doing it, and then five hours go by, and you think five minutes have gone by. And, of course, everybody's been involved with the converse when you're waiting for the dentist. And five minutes seems like five hours. But when you're really loving what you do, he says that, you know, study after study around the world has shown that people lose a sense of time because they're not self-conscious. And that's what writing is for me. So if I get up in the morning at 7 in the morning and write till 10 at night, it seems like, you know, an hour's gone by. Hmm. And so if you really love it, then no matter what happens after that, I think certainly worthwhile doing. And, and, and the more you do it, I think the better you, you get like anything. So, as, as you mentioned, you've, you've gone around and given a lot of presentations uh, to schools. What do you think is really the uh, state of science education in this country? I think it's probably lagging some other countries, but it's mixed. I think in some areas it's very, very good. In some areas it's, it's less so. But I, uh, certainly there's room for improvement. And, you know, one of the things, one of my theses that I really strong on is, is the use of the Internet. The World Wide Web is just such an incredible source of scientific information nowadays, and it's really pretty accurate. I mean, if you cross-reference and make sure that you're on NASA's site and not, you know, Joe's site of made-up facts, it's very accurate. It's, it's more up-to-date than a textbook. And, you know, when I do research for National Geographic kids, when I have a story that they assign me, for instance, I know nothing about it. And, you know, I had to write a, a thing about the brain and I knew a lot about the brain, but not comprehensively enough to just pick out the little nuggets that the kids are going to enjoy. So, you know, you go online, and I think that schools should emphasize that. You know, as much as rote memorization of scientific facts, let them just kind of go where they will through the Internet and go on some fun science facts websites and learn that science can be surprising and unexpected and really fun. And, and, and you know, now that they've got all these videos online that, that demonstrate science, I mean, you know, they've got a quantum physics uh, video, Dr. Quantum, I think it is, that's just fantastic to help simplify one of the most complex subjects in the world, quantum physics. I actually wrote an article on using the World Wide Web for education uh, that appears on the Naked Scientist which is a radio program through the BBC in England, and it's called uh, Once a Night is Not Enough. 
and it's a joke on Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, talking about Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the World Wide Web, and, you know, suggesting that even though he was knighted, his contribution was so great that he really deserves more. But I go into using the Internet for, for science education. So, so I think, you know, that could be huge, and I also think making it as fun as possible through the use of things like science fiction to inspire kids, I think, would be a big help, too. Indeed. Uh, let's say we're running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you, know, you can talk about any uh, future projects you have in mind or uh, some final words on communicating science to young adults. Yeah. You know, in terms of future projects, I'm, I'm working on a third one in the series, and I hope to do many more uh, of these. I, I should direct people who are, if they have any interest, to my website. It's uh, com. It's really an awful website, so I apologize. It, it, I, I'm, I'm really trying to learn web design, and I'm, I'm failing at it miserably, but there it has kind of a collection of a lot of uh, accolades the books have received and reviews and you know links to different things. It's got some uh, National Geographic Kids articles that I've done if people are interested in that. So, But I am working on a, on a third one, and uh, I would love to do uh, many, many more of these. Well, they are, they are certainly fascinating. Uh, the, the new series are called The Prometheus Project. And Mr. Richards, I want to thank you very much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. Thank you, Charles. I really appreciate it. And we're just listening to Mr. Doug Richards discussing The Prometheus Project. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. You don't care for me. game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Prometheus, uh, or Discordia, goddess of confusion, and would like you to rate the following five people as either being more Prometheus-like or more uh, Discordia-like. Mr. Uh, Richards, are you ready to play the game? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Person number one, Prometheus or Discordia, Donald Trump. Boy, that's a tough one. Uh, I'm going to have to go with uh, Prometheus. Uh, he's kind of a, on the board. I mean, he's a pretty good businessman. So it's really able to steal fire. And sell it for a, for a profit. <laughs> All right, person number two is former Microsoft CEO Bill Gates. Boy, I've had so many problems with Microsoft Windows, but I'm going to have to say uh, Prometheus. Uh, number three is the heiress Paris Hilton. Well, that's pretty easy, Discordia. <laughs> uh, number four is the talk show host Jerry Springer. Um, I'm going to have to say Prometheus. Really? Because... You know, he makes no bones about the fact that he that his shows are horrible and that he's just 
preaching to the lowest common denominator. If you ever hear him interviewed, he's pretty funny about it. <laughs> he knows his show is garbage. Okay. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting. He's self-aware of how crappy he is. <laughs> okay. All right. And finally, uh, person number five, it's the American uh, Idol judge, Simon Cowell. Simon Cowell. Wow, this is a hard game. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to say... Confusion or Prometheus? Well, I'm going to go with Prometheus again. I mean, he must be doing something right. People watch the show. I, I, I do. Uh, I have in the last couple of years. He's doing something right. He's done pretty well for himself. So I'm going to have to go with Prometheus. So I guess I, I, I'm trying to look on the bright side of everybody except Harris Hilton. We'll give you five out of five for that then. <laughs> okay. Great. Thanks. Uh, all right. Well, Mr. Richard, I want to thank you for sticking around, playing our game, and of course, talking about uh, all the fascinating uh, work you're doing, especially with uh, the new series of books, The Prometheus Project. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. Care. All right, and we're back, and now it's time for this week's question of the week with our good friend, the Tokyo Kid. Hey, Tokyo, how you doing? Ah, uh, thank you, Dr. Lee. Worry that one day our beloved Mount Fuji may erupt again. Tokyo will be in trouble, so maybe I will become the Osaka kid. <laughs> Change is good. Well, so, so we're curious. So, just exactly how tall is Mount Fuji? Uh, so, Mount Fuji is actually the tallest mountain in Japan, but it is actually not very tall compared to many other mountains around the world. In fact, it is only 3,750 meters above the sea level. Let's hope for an explosion then. Yes, I think it would be very exciting, but maybe I should move west before that happens. (laughs) All right, well, thanks a lot, Tokyo Kid. Okay, and uh, thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.